You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Hello. We are going to give announcements when we come to the Lord's table for a very specific reason uh, that the Lord is doing. Uh, So I'm just going to ask Marissa if you would come up. I'm going to read two verses and then Marissa will read the gospel. Uh, Isaiah 6.13, this is our verse for the year this year at Salem Tabernacle. It says, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And this is our verse for the year. The holy seed is the stump, which that word seed in the Hebrew means the holy offspring or the youngest among us is the stump. And so the Lord told us this year that we're not supposed to raise the kinds of kids that adults like being around. We are to be the kinds of adults that make kids feel safe being around. To reiterate what was read earlier by Eric in Hosea, let us know, and this was our verse in 2019, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out assures the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And Marissa, would you please read the gospel? A reading from the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 9, 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marissa. So we are in a series. Whenever, whatever the worship service does, just needs to say this, side, side point, for my first point, here's a side point. Whatever happens in the worship service, there's two things that we can know. For me, one of the things I know is that the tenor and tone of the worship service is also help, helps me set the tenor and tone of how I'm supposed to preach. And so it's a submission thing. Like, I don't come up here and preach what I decided, how I decided. I plan, and then I listen to what the Spirit is doing through the other gifted leaders that God has given to us, and I submit to that. And so if I seem slightly more subdued, it's because I feel the presence of God in kind of a weighty manner. And right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm trying to figure out how to say this that way. So give me a minute, right? With that said, with that said, that happens with me so that everybody in this room, like your sermon starts when you leave here. My sermon starts after the worship service because my job is to bring you in a healthy way to the Lord's table so you could sit down with Jesus and eat. That's what the sermon is for. The sermon is to prepare the bride to sit with the groom and have a meal together. Amen? 
which means when you walk out of here, your sermon, your life is the kind of life that should be lived in a way that makes people who don't know Jesus comfortable enough to sit down with you and share a meal and not realize they had an encounter with Jesus. And then realize they had an encounter with Jesus. And so whatever the tenor and tone, whenever the worship service takes on a life of its own, that also tells us the way, it's giving us not just the language, but it's giving us the way that God wants us speaking to people that week. So it should touch your personality in a way that brings virtue, and as they say in the church, it brings a healing balm to your voice, to the way that you are. And so I pray that our worship services settle us, settle our anxieties, bring consolations to our soul, not just so that we could have it a good experience here, but so that we could become that good experience for other people when we leave here. I'm doing all of this just to figure out how to say this right now in a way that I had a lot of jokes up front, and that's not really, no. The verse for the year is God telling us to be the kind of place that helps us to take care of our children. And so we're doing something new. Uh, We're doing something new in that this December, the first Sunday of December, we're going to be having a very special service here where we're going to be baptizing anybody who wants to be baptized from 17 years old or younger. And so there will be some people who make that decision for themselves, and there will be some parents who make that decision for their younger kids. And I am painstakingly going through this in very, very careful ways because I understand that this idea is very familiar to probably half of you and very foreign and maybe even a little scary to half of you, this idea that we would baptize infants. And so... What we're doing here is we're not trying to replace a room. We're trying, as we said last week, to build an extension on the house. We're trying to be the kinds of people who can live together with all sorts of diversity. And as we said, not just ethnic diversity, which we do a good job of here, but also doctrinal diversity, which is something the church has had a hard time doing forever. And I believe God has said, we are capable of this here. We're capable of being a church that doesn't just minister to unbelievers, but you're ready. It ministers to other churches that it is possible to believe slightly different things about Jesus, coexist together, and maybe together have the full picture of Jesus. Yes? And I also mentioned last week that, you know, you're going to, like last week I made a statement, and at the beginning of the statement I said, let me finish the whole statement before you send me an email, right? And because we're used to being people who when we hear the beginning of something, we're used to hearing statements very quickly now. Even people who speak to us on the news and on TV talk very, in very short sentences because we, we make decisions now immediately. I'm doing this series in four weeks, not in one sermon, because this is a vision, it's not a stance. I could tell you my stance on things in two seconds, but if you ask me what my vision is, we need to sit down, (laughs) right? And so the vision is more important than the stance. As a matter of fact, like we said last week, um, yes, I am promoting last week's sermon. Listen to it, because this is a continuation. If you live by stances, you're not moving, you're standing. And Jesus moves. We're Salem Tabernacle, and tabernacles do what? Move. We're not about stances, we're about vision. We're about mission. We're about something bigger than a stance on something. Our stances will change thousands of times in our life. 
I had stances before I got married that changed when I got married. I had stances on your parenting that I had before I had kids, and now I have no more stances, and I beg for your forgiveness every day of my life. Things change as your life changes, and so it's more healthy that we present a mission and a vision to the world around us. People are going to want to know. Uh, I've told this story before, but somebody pulled up to the front of the church, and Grady uh, was ushering, and they said, hey, I'm looking for a church. And Grady's like, hey, this is great. You came to the right place. And this person said, hey, I'm just curious. Do people believe that tongues is the initial evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit at this church? And Grady goes, some of us do. And the person drove off because they're looking for a church where everybody believes the same thing. They're looking for a cult. And here we know that the Holy Spirit is like wind and fire. He can do whatever he wants. Whatever he wants the initial evidence to be, it'll be, because that's what he wants. So this is challenging for some of us, but this is, we're embarking on something that I believe more important than our view of baptism is our ability to be an Acts chapter 2 church, which is a church that learns to speak in the language and tongues of other Christians who are trying to worship. And there's, there's a reason why our Bible begins with a genealogy. See, John's gospel starts with in the beginning, which if I was putting the Bible together, that would be a nice way to start the New Testament, right? The Old Testament starts with in the beginning. So let's have the New Testament start with, but it doesn't begin with that. It begins with so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. It's like, why? That is the most boring beginning to a very climactic moment. And Jesus is like, no, because before Christianity is anything, it is entrance into a family that God is growing. That's what it is. That's why we get baptized. We don't get baptized, listen to me, we don't primarily get baptized so that everybody can know my individual faith. We get baptized because I'm realizing that I have now become a we. And now I'm part of a new family. And that family is the family that witnesses to its faith. That family is the family that witnesses to the world around it. One of our local rabbis said to me once, don't you think it's a little bit weird that God became a Christian in your faith? And I said, God didn't become a Christian. God became a person in the person of Jesus, and Christians are the people who witness to that person and say, that's God. God became a person for everybody. We are the people who point to that person and say, that's the person God became for everybody. That's the family we're a part of, and that's what we get baptized into. We get baptized into a family. It's why Jesus chooses John at the cross to take Mary home and not James, his actual brother. He violates every bit of scripture when he says, John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son, because Jesus is saying the baptized community is now the primary community over the family community, over the ethnic community. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. The whole book of Romans is about how the gospel destroys racism at its very core because we're now no longer primarily identified by what our bloodline is. We're primarily identified by his bloodline that spilled into my life and made me somebody entirely new. And now my ethnicity is part of how I worship God. And it's how we differentiate ourselves to show in the community of believers the Trinity. Like when you come into Salem and you see people looking different, it's because in the one single God, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? There's difference within the Trinity, and so there should be differentiation within every local church. 
I'm spilling this out right now because this is what's happening in my heart, but this is what baptism is. Baptism is so much bigger than an individual saying, I now believe. Baptism is about the church that Jesus started continuing to grow and getting bigger and getting bigger and not dominating or conquering the earth, but showering the world with his love. Not taking it back for Jesus. Have you ever heard anybody talk like this? we got to take the schools back, and it's so militant. We don't have to take any. Jesus does not need me to take anything back. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Every school belongs to him whether we pray in it or not. And because of that, we don't need to be intense or in people's face. We need to serve. We're here to wash feet not argue, not debate, not yell back, not clap louder. Is that the kids are saying now, clapping back at people? I don't know. I hung out with three of our youth yesterday and don't understand a thing they said the entire time. This was so much fun, and I'm like, I hope it was. Don't know what you were talking about. I don't get these things. I was trying to, like, pick up, and then I was like, I'm going to try to use some of these new terms. I'm like, I'm not ever going to try. So the question is, and actually one of my pastor friends asked me, why are you doing a, a baptism teaching on a Sunday? This sounds like it should be a Wednesday night deal. And I said, here's why. Because Sunday is how we remember our baptism. Sunday is how we remember our baptism. Listen, there are many of you here who you were baptized as an infant. You don't remember getting baptized. Some people will get baptized as an adult, and because life will take over, one day they might not remember their baptism. Somebody could get into a car accident and not remember their baptism. Somebody could have trauma happen to them and not remember their baptism. I forgot to take out the garbage. There's a good chance I'm going to forget things as life goes on. You ever walk into a room and forget why you walked in? You ever walk into the bathroom and forgot why you walked in? We're going to forget things. Some of our theology hovers in ableism where it's like the, you have to be old enough and you have to make a public declaration. It has, you have to know what you're doing. And the reality is there's a lot of people in life that that will never happen for. There's a lot of people in life who don't have the capacity to even do that. And so we want to make sure that we don't hold up a doctrine that's privileged with health. We want to make sure we hold up a doctrine that everybody can participate in. Just let it sit there for a minute. It's going to be tough. It's okay. We're not replacing it, but we're adding something to it. It's hard to do this. We're going to be okay. When you walk in here on Sunday, it reminds you of the community you were baptized into. It reminds you of the life, capital L, Jesus, the life that you were baptized into. And it reminds us of the mission we were baptized into. When you walk into church on Sunday, you are reminded, you are stepping into the memory of your baptism by seeing the family you are now a part of because of baptism, the life that you're a part of because of baptism, and the mission you're a part of because of baptism. So 
part of, when you read the Bible carefully, part of what God says is, when your children in time ask you about this, tell them. There's something about personal experience that God wants us to have, and then there are other experiences that God wants us to have before we're able to know we had it, and then we, he wants us to have the experience of being told about that experience. How many of you know that you're forgiven? Every time you sin, raise your hands. I'm going to wait. Stuart. How many have needed a moment where even though you knew it, it helped your soul when somebody reminded you, hey, I know that was bad, but you're forgiven? How many know that God is good without me having to tell you? But how many leave loving when a pastor or a worship leader gets up here and says, you might be struck down, but you're not destroyed. You might be left, but you're not abandoned. You might be bruised, but you're going to be able to get back up again. Why? Because God is good even in your bad. Does that motivate people sometimes? But here's the thing. You knew it already. But there's something about being told what we already know. Raise your hand if you were there when Jesus died on the cross physically. John, you're the worst. Jesus said, the majority, let's call it everybody but 12 people, were not there when he gave this meal. And let's say 150 people were at the cross. Later on in Galatians, Paul will say to the Galatians, Christ was publicly displayed before your eyes as crucified. You ready? No, he wasn't. They were in Galatia. They didn't jump in a Civic and drive to Calvary that day. So how is Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified to people who weren't there? Do this in what? Remembrance. We had an experience at the cross, every one of us, that we didn't know we had when it was happening. And every Sunday... We come to the Lord's table to remember an experience that we had in Christ when we weren't there to have it physically. Now, if you grew up in a Pentecostal church, this next part will be funny. If you didn't, we'll just turn the page. But when I say that you had an experience in Jesus that you didn't know you had, and God didn't knew that you weren't going to remember it, so he gave us a sacrament to help us remember something we weren't there for, People are like, well, I don't know, pastor. Well, here's the thing. Whenever anybody preaches on tithing, have you ever heard a pastor preach on tithing? We like to say things like, Levi paid tithes when he was in the what? Loins of Abraham. So we will believe when it comes to money that Levi had an experience of actually paying tithes when he was still in the loins of Abraham, but when it comes to the sacraments, we're like, no, 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 you have to physically be able to know that it's happening. So when it comes to money, we're sacramental, but when it comes to righteousness and holiness, all of a sudden we get weird about it. Maybe we should sit down and check ourselves about that, no? Okay. Tim, Shalid, we're in this. We will do this together. It says in Hebrews that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. How many are glad that Jesus is always making intercession for you? And how many are glad that our hope, if somebody said to me, how would you describe the Christian hope in one short sentence? 
I would describe it like this. My hope is that God will fully do whatever it is Jesus is asking him to do for us. I hope that God, the Father, fully does whatever it is that Jesus is asking him to do for us. I want God to answer the prayers that Jesus is praying more than I want him to answer any prayers that are being prayed anywhere. As a matter of fact, it says in Revelation that the elders took bowls with incense and gave them to the Father. In other words, heaven is collecting our prayers and then giving them to Jesus who's giving them to the Father. So our prayers become his anyway. And I want God to answer whatever prayers Jesus is praying. And you know what Jesus is praying? Here's the prayer he's praying. Father, if I'm lifted up, I want to draw how many? I really hope God answers that prayer, no? If you don't want him to answer that prayer, let's make a meeting and talk this week. How do we know that Jesus is still interceding for us? How do we know? Well, it's an, you can know it in biblical knowledge. That's great. But we also have to know. Like, there has to be something we can touch and see. So there, there are two ways that we know that Jesus is always interceding for us. One of those ways are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What happened today? When somebody speaks, when Stephanie has a word, when the Holy Spirit directs me to come up, right? Jacqueline, that we're going to hear about it in a minute, Jacqueline gave me a word out there that we'll talk about during announcements uh, at the Eucharist. So the, one of the ways that we know is when somebody calls you and says, I'm praying for you. When somebody calls you and says, hey, the Lord told me you're in the valley of decision. I, I feel like the Holy Spirit told me whatever it is you're facing, he's telling you to say yes. And you're like, you have no idea how much I needed to hear that just now right? There's times where you're struggling and no one's seeing you at work and you, you're just bent under the weight of the day-to-day -day grind, 50, 60, 70 hours a week only to not make enough money. And then somebody just comes up to you and says, hey, the Lord knows what you're going through. And you're like, I really needed to, I knew he did, but I really needed him to tell you to tell me that he did. Has anybody ever been encouraged by these gifts of the Spirit before, right? That's one of the ways we know that Jesus is interceding for us, is that he has given gifts to people to give to us so that we can say thank you to him, and he shares his life with us. There's another way that we know he intercedes for us, and it's a scary little word, and it's called the sacraments. The sacraments. There are two, there's probably a few, but there are two words that exist regularly in Christian speak that do not show up in the Bible. Two very important words. One of them is Trinity. The Trinity is the doctrine of Christianity. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you have not yet become a Christian. But the word doesn't show up in the Bible. The word Trinity was, 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 put, was given to us through the Holy Spirit's work over the ages of the church because we realize as a church that God is a categoryless God. You cannot put God in a category. And so sometimes we need to come up with words that are specific to Christianity because we're describing a God that language can't describe. And so Trinity is a word that the church gave us to describe who God is. It's an attempt. It's a try. It's a roll of the dice. It's a good, good try. Another word is sacrament. What is a sacrament? Ian, can you put the first definition up? A sacrament, the sacraments are outward and visible signs 
of inward and spiritual grace given by Christ as sure and certain means by which we receive that grace. I came up with a second definition for us that will help. Definition two, summarizing. Definition one, a sacrament is a sign that does the thing it signifies like a stop sign that makes you stop. So the sacraments are outward and visible signs that Jesus gave us to show us inward and spiritual graces that he's always giving us. So three of those, there's seven, eight, depending on where you are, what you believe, what you read. Three of the most popular, widely accepted are the Eucharist, baptism, and marriage. Marriage. <laughs> marriage. What is Eucharist, baptism, marriage? Can't say that word anymore now. They are outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace given by Jesus that do the very things they signify. So what are the elements of the sacrament that is the Eucharist that Jesus gave us in all four Gospels? They're bread and it's juice. So what does it do? It feeds and it quenches. So it's a sacrament. It's an outward and visible sign of an inward and visible grace that does the thing that it looks like it does. So when we receive his intercession, his presence through the Eucharist, we are receiving his nourishment and his energy and his vitality, as the angel said to Ezekiel, for the journey ahead. It does what it signifies. It nourishes us. It's the manna that fell in the wilderness. It's the daily bread we pray for every day. It's the body and blood of Jesus, as he said in John 6. It's an experience with the living God. Is it literally, are you ready? Here we go. Everybody ready? Stretch your brain for a second. You ready? However you would do that. Here's the thing. Is it literally, and I'm going to get in trouble for this, is it literally the body of Jesus? No. If I eat that, and I die now, and they do an autopsy on me, they will not find DNA that has like the code of 777 or something like that. They won't. They'll find whatever that is, wherever they made it. You didn't expect me to say that, did you? Is it symbolically or is it a, is it a symbol or a metaphor of the presence of God? No. Isn't this fun? This is fun. How, what is it then? Let's look at the story from the lectionary today, which I jumped and hit the roof when I saw that this was the lectionary text for today. This woman is pushing through the crowd. She needs to be healed. And what does she touch? Does she touch Jesus' physical body? She touches his clothing. And when she touches his clothing, what happens to her? Okay, here's the thing. Was his garment literally the presence of God. No. Otherwise, we would come here on Sundays to worship a garment. But was it symbolically his presence? No. Why? Because something literally happened to her. Signs and symbols don't make actual things happen. In real life, a stop sign, and I know this because I've been in the car with my wife, don't actually make you stop. 
Jacqueline has never run a stop sign, I just want to say. Well, you were on ice. That's what happened. <laughs> so it's not literal. That's a category humans have, yes? Have you ever said to somebody, I literally, and then said something? Like, it's a category we have. It's not literal, but it's also not symbolic or metaphorical because something actually happens. So we have to come up with a word that describes a category that we don't have as humans because we're serving a God who doesn't exist in a category. Why? Because he made categories. The God who made categories isn't in one. So the word sacrament is a way to describe a third category of experiencing the presence of God. His garment was not the literal presence of God. His garment wasn't a metaphor of the presence of God. His garment became a sacramental moment. When Peter's shadow went by people and they got healed, was his shadow the literal presence of God? No. Was it just a metaphor? No, because people actually got healed. It was sacramentally the presence of God. When TBN sends you a prayer handkerchief. <laughs> Isn't it funny that some people who say, oh, the Roman Catholics, like, they, they worship statues and then we're selling prayer cloths? Like, we all could be materialistic when we want to be, right? That was just a sidebar. I needed to get that out. The Eucharist is a sacrament. It's not literally his presence, but it's so much more than a metaphor because when you take it, something literally happens inside of you. The water that will be filled in this tank, we, we pray over it and we say, Lord, let the water in this tank become the Jordan River that Jesus was baptized in. So if you took a sample of it, and brought it down to Fishkill for them to test the water, would they say, this is interesting. This is the River Jordan. No. They would tell you it's water from Beacon. Great. But when you get baptized in it, it's so much more than that. Something actually happens to you. A great, what does it say? A grace is imparted to you. The physical thing that you're seeing is equated to the grace that is given to you. And what is the grace given to you in baptism? Cleansing from your sin, restoration from your brokenness, and incorporation like being born through water, the water broke, into a new family. That's what baptism is. Baptism is how we know that somebody has just been added to the family. Water. Stephanie, you messed everything up again. Jeez Louise. Jesus' body. Jesus' body is what's called in the church the primordial sacrament. Jesus hanging on the cross is all of the gifts of the Spirit happening at the same time. Jesus hanging on the cross is all of the sacraments happening at the same time. Jesus hanging on the cross is the full embodiment of God happening through something natural to the world that it's in. 
You ready? The cross does what it signifies like a stop sign that makes you stop. What did Jesus say? As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that all men might be saved, right? Well, how did you get saved in the wilderness? Did you confess that you saw the serpent? No, you just happened to look at it and you were healed. Read the Bible. It's in there. It was a sacrament that was happening to you just because it was happening to you. And Jesus said, in the same way, when I go up on that cross, if anyone sees me crucified, they will be saved. Well, that stinks for all of us who weren't there 2,000 years ago, unless what Paul said is true, that I have been crucified with Christ. So every time you look at somebody like Paul or you or me, what are you seeing? You're seeing Jesus crucified. The sacrament works because God wants it to. That's why it works. I was born into the family I was born into. No one gave me a choice. My parents aren't here today. No one gave me a choice. I didn't get to decide. I didn't get to pick my parents. I got lucky with very good ones, by the way. But I was a Dandriano because they told me I was. You all exist here right now because of a choice other people made. There's two dates on your gravestone. You don't get to choose them. And watch this. This is a little bit of a morbid point, but watch this. You don't get to choose when you're born. And we all know that if you choose when you die, it's a tragic thing. Because we all know we shouldn't choose when we're born and we shouldn't choose when we die. They should happen because other people are making decisions. God, he makes the decision when I'm here, and he makes the decision to call me home, yes? the most important parts of our life happened because other people made choices. So now, let's look at Jarius and the woman with the issue of blood. Look at what we have side by side. This is perfect for what we're trying to do here. In one story, you have the story of a woman who made a decision to press through a crowd and touch Jesus. And, and he looks at her and says, what? Your faith has made you... Does he say that? Yes, he says it. Marissa read it. He says it. If Marissa read it, it is true. So you can argue that there is a decision you have to make. But what's also happening in that story? Jarius said, can you come heal my daughter? And by the time Jesus gets there, she can't say, Lord, I want you to heal me because she's... But he heals her because of Jarius' faith. So, pastor, which one is it? Yes. Don't try to make it one or the other. You'll be wrong. There's a way in which our choice matters, and there's a way in which the choice that Jesus is making for me matters more than the choices I'm making, and everybody said, thank the living God. <laughs> Rosanna, you've made perfect choices all your whole life. Aren't you happy that Jesus' choices are kind of over? You know what I'm saying? Now, I've made mostly perfect choices in my life, do you hear the way people laugh at that? It's proof that it's not true. See the way Carrie stares at me? We've been friends for a long time. 
Everybody knows that if any goodness comes from this pulpit to you, it's because Jesus' choices for me are better than my choices for him. This is uncomfortable. But watch this. Let's keep going. Let's have fun. Let's keep going. A little bit longer. Little bit longer. Let's see. Luke 9. Luke 9. Watch this. Now, about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his, say it again, they spoke of his departure. By the way, it's 70 degrees in here. I just want everybody to know this. I love you, and I'm making some changes. I might die, but I hope everybody is comfortable. (laughs) Hydrate. (laughs) That is... uh, that is true. Okay. They sp- <laughs> I love you too. They spoke of his what? Departure. Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about Jesus' what? Now, here's the funny thing. Watch how this changes. In the Greek, you know what the word departure means? Exodus. Moses spoke to Jesus about the real exodus that was about to take place. How cool is this? Moses, who was spearheading the first prophetic exodus, is now talking to the true and better Moses on the mountain where Moses likely died, who is now awake, talking to Jesus about the real exodus. Jesus, the true and better Moses, Satan, the true and better Pharaoh, and Jesus' blood, the true and better Red Sea. You see this? So what Jesus is doing on the primordial sacrament, the sacrament of all sacraments, the sacrament that houses all of the sacraments, marriage, baptism, confirmation, reconciliation, ordination, healing, all of the sacraments are in the cross. On the cross, he is performing the real, full, and entire exodus. Do we agree? So let's go back to the other exodus. Watch what happens. When Israel leaves, Exodus 12, 37, when Israel leaves... It says, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides what? Hold your horses. If the Exodus is salvation, have you ever heard somebody say their testimony, I got saved and the Lord delivered me from Egypt? <laughs> Did those parents wait for their children to get old enough to choose to leave Egypt? Maybe some of them wanted to wait until their children were old enough. Hey, you stay here. We're going to go. You stay here. Did mom and dad decide to leave? Could they have stayed if they wanted to? Did they make the decision to leave? Did they wait till their kids became age of reason to leave, or did they take their children with them? You know why? Because that's what good parents do. When you can bring your child to something good, you bring them to something good. Amen? Maybe not. Maybe you don't. Maybe we should meet. I'm just saying. But 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5. 
Paul is speaking. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were what? Baptized into Moses. So when they went through the Red Sea, the men, women, and it, they were baptized into Moses. So the Red Sea is equated to baptism, and through the Red Sea went men, women, and so this is why the church baptizes infants, everybody, because in the inferior, everybody say inferior, in the inferior covenant, children were brought through the waters of baptism because mom and dad knew it was good for them. Why does the better covenant exclude them? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe this is why we have to bring it alongside believer's baptism, because there is good, healthy, scriptural reasons for us to look at the whole narrative of scripture. Whenever you're going to make an argument about a doctrine, you cannot use verses. You have to use narrative. The whole narrative of scripture has to point to it, not one isolated thing. Has anybody ever described a conversation you had and forgot to tell the person the whole story and just told them one isolated thing that you said? Happens to me all the time, by some of you. It's not a comfortable feeling because you're sitting there saying, that's n I know I said that, but that's not what I meant because you didn't hear the whole story. Story is what matters for interpretation more than isolated verses do. Just like your whole story matters more for me understanding you than the thing I heard you say yesterday. Amen? Okay. I'm almost done. We're almost done. Usferba. That was a word my friend Drake Smith used to say at Allstate. I don't know where that came from, but shout out to you, Drake. Whenever he would hear me get annoyed, because I don't know if you know this about me, sometimes I get annoyed. He would hear me get annoyed, and he'd wheel his chair over, and he'd be like, Bill, Usferba. And I'd be like, that's ridiculous. But then it would calm me down every single time. So, all right, uh, one more. Luke 17, 19. This one's fun. This one's fun. Everybody wake up. This one's fun, all right? Luke 17, 19. And Jesus said to him, rise and go your way. Say it out loud. Ron, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Do we agree with this? Yes. Does my choice matter? Yes. But watch this other story, Luke 9, 1 to 3. Uh, nope, Ian, we put the wrong verses on there. Okay, but it's fine because I can tell it to you because I know it. You know the story where people got, uh, let the paralyzed man down through the roof? They break into Jesus' house. They break through his whole roof. How many would be thrilled about this? They didn't have State Farm. Right? Jesus was the good neighbor. <laughs> that is so cheesy. It's not even funny. No. No, 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 no. That was terrible. That's me becoming a dad. Don't let this happen. Don't encourage it. It says that when they came down, it says that Jesus saw their faith. Go home and do the research on me. When they came down, it says Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now, he didn't heal him right away. He did something even more outlandishly scandalous. 
four guys, he looks at them and says, because of your faith, I'm going to say to him, your sins are forgiven. Did he confess? No. Did he ask for his sins to be get forgiven? No. Jesus saw their prayers and said, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine if your prayers matter that much? Because they do. Jesus is forgiving sins. Listen, Jesus is forgiving sins of people you're asking him to forgive sins for, even if they don't know that their sins are being forgiven every time you pray it. What does he say? If you forgive others, they will be, and if you withhold forgiveness, it will be, he doesn't say, if you forgive others and they also say, forgive me. He says, if you forgive others, their sins will be. That's why James says there's power in the tongue. He says the power of the tongue is the power of life and death. Why? Because in the power of the tongue is forgiveness or not. So there's this balance, there's this fullness, there's this coming together of the personal declaration of faith, yes, but there's also this reality that when you know that there's something good, that God's grace can be communicated to somebody, you put them in that if you're able to. What parent, if they saw a train barreling toward their son, would say, get off the tracks, and if he said no, they go, man, he never listens this kid, I'll tell you, ever since he was little, doesn't listen. I would die. You ready? If Theo was standing on tracks when a train, listen to me very carefully. If he was standing on tracks when a train was coming and was refusing to get off and I was within shot of his body, you ready? I'm going to say it exactly the way I want to say it. I would violate his free will to get him off those tracks. I'm going to say that again for everybody in the back. I would violate his free will to yank him off the tracks whether or not he wanted me to or not. If he was saying, I reject you, I don't believe in you, we're going to have this conversation off the tracks. I don't care about your freedom when your freedom's going to kill you. I'm a good dad. I'm taking you off the tracks. That is Jesus saying, I am taking you off the tracks regardless of what you think about it. Watch. This is really, ready? Watch. If there's a hundred sheep and one goes astray, he goes and finds it, right? Read what it says, though. Read what Jesus says. The shepherd finds it and does what with it? Puts it on his shoulders, it doesn't matter if that sheep wants to go with him or not. He puts it on his shoulders and says, I'm taking you where it's good for you, whether or not you want to. This is what he does. Pastor, it's too good to be true. Then it's not true enough. As Randall Worley said, if you think you're exaggerating Jesus when you're preaching... If you think you're exaggerating him, try harder until you know you're exaggerating him because you still haven't begun to describe it yet. Now, I close with this. I'm not making a case against believer's baptism. 
But here's something everybody has to know about social dynamics. When, if there's two good things, and everybody's in this good thing, but there's another good thing over here, you sometimes have to step into this good thing and over-talk it because nobody knows about it. Okay? So it's going to sound like you're comparing it to that and saying, this is better than that. But you're just getting the jelly beans onto this side of the scale. Does that make sense? So it sounds like I'm negating something. I'm giving good biblical information as to why the church was baptizing infants and whole households since the Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2. The jailer gets saved. We're going to talk about this in two weeks. The jailer gets saved. He goes home, and it says he and his whole household were baptized. So you could argue in Scripture three times that happens that what qualifies you for baptism is not age. It's whether or not you're part of a family. And guess what everybody on the face of the earth is? Part of a family. Might be a broken family. Might be a non-existent family. But every person was born of a woman. And they're part of a family. Which would make them part of a household. Well, that household might have rejected them. They're part of a household that rejected them then. But everybody's part of a household, which means anybody that's part of a household can be kerplunk baptized. Final point. Somebody said to me this week, you know, if there was an infant born in a hospital and that infant was dying, like they knew the baby was going to die, I'd have no problem with the child being baptized. Okay? The minute any of us were born, guess what we started doing? Dying. We all have a terminal illness. We all are going to die. We don't know when, but we will. Everybody. The sacraments, Eucharist, baptism, marriage, healing, confirmation, ordination, reconciliation, they're given to us to help us be discipled into learning to die gracefully. I won't say who because people in this room know the person, but I was called to somebody's house in 2020, said, Pastor, this person, she's old, we're here, hospice has left, they're going to pass away, they're really hanging on. (laughs) And I went, and I performed what the Eastern Orthodox Church calls the sacrament of last rites. A sacrament, a way that the church has given us to communicate Jesus' intercession over somebody's life. And I leaned over that person, and I said her name. I said, your sins are forgiven. You have nothing to regret. Go home, and may you find peace with the Father. I walked out of the room to get a drink of water, and she passed away. Everyone's dying and needs the grace of God communicated to them because we don't know when it's going to happen. This is why the church also includes infants in baptism, because you baptize the dying. Is that morbid? It's morbid, yes, 
but it's the reality that Jesus faced every day of his life. So this is complicated, but what you say is, after you baptize an infant, you say, may he who began a good work in you be faithful to complete it. Well, pastor, I know a lot of people who have been baptized as infants, and they're not walking with the Lord right now. Okay? Well, I have friends who were baptized with me here who are not walking with the Lord right now at 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. Here's what we know. You don't, your baptism isn't finished until the day you die. It's not the one day and then it's done. Your baptism is your whole entire life. Somebody said it this way. When an adult gets saved and they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, all they're really doing is confirming the faith they had since they were an infant and lost along the way. Why? Because Jesus said, unless your faith becomes like... And when you look up that word in the Greek, it's infant. Unless your faith becomes like that of an infant, what can't you do? You can't inherit the what? And then he says, to them belongs what? It's okay. Say it out loud. The water's fine. To them belongs the kingdom. Suffer not the children to come to me. To them belongs the kingdom, which means when you're born as a baby, you have in you the faith you need to have the kingdom of heaven belong to you. When you grow up, you lose that faith and have to reclaim it. But when you get baptized as an adult, you're getting baptized. I wish I could moonwalk. You're getting baptized into your infancy. You're getting baptized back into the time when you had the faith that Jesus says we all need to have to enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to choose a faith that infants innately have. How many people here remember the day your child was born? These doctors, let's all describe it in detail, please, one at a time. No. These doctors perform outstanding acts to get a human out of another human and both are okay. I'm like, let me just stay out of the way and not trip or something. They deliver this child, hand it to the parents, and the minute mom or dad speaks, you can tell right then and there that that child knows you in a way they don't know that doctor. Because infants are capable of having personal relationships. If an infant can have a personal relationship with its imperfect father, how much more does it have an intimate personal relationship with its heavenly father? I watched Theo turn his head 15 minutes old when he heard Sophia's voice on FaceTime. Turned his little head, his little E.T. head, just turned it. It grew, he like, it goes, he knew his sister's voice. You know why he knew his sister's voice? Because he's been hearing her talk incessantly, <laughs> nonstop, for months. 
We all know her voice. But he recognized some voices as different than others. Because infants, children, they have a faith they don't need to choose to have. They have a faith that's deeper than choice. This is why. This is why we're giving mom and dad the option to baptize their infant, one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old. I'm looking forward to baptizing Theo. Sophie is excited to being baptized. When they get a little older, you hear the things Sophia says about the Lord. I think she knows him better than I do. I'm like, Sophia, Exodus 12. <laughs> what are your thoughts? And she's like, I don't know, just tell them about Jesus. And I'm like, well, actually, that's good. I'm going to do that, right? Let's stand to our feet this morning. I'm proud of you, Salem, for going down this road with me. We had a pastor here last week, and when we went outside, he said to me, thank you for that. And I said, for what? And he said, tell that church, I said, thank you for letting me know that it's possible to be that healthy. He said, thank that church for letting me know as a pastor it's possible to have a church that's actually that healthy, that can worship like that, that can hear sermons like that, that can be stretched like that, and still love the Lord and each other like that. And I said, I'll tell them. And maybe one day he'll come here and tell you himself. Salem, Jacqueline, as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, I'm going to say these announcements very quickly. If you're new here, spoiler alert, <laughs> service just happened. You know the end. Uh, the Ordinary Christian Life course, uh, part two, you can sign up for it um, at George and Cheryl's house this week. If you would like your home blessed, last time I said I was going to do house blessings, like my foot fell off and the doctors had to put it back on again. No, I'm just kidding. But I had a couple surgeries, so I'm ready to do that again. So there's a, if you want your house blessed, there's a form out there. I have times that I gave for doing that. You can sign up. Uh, Father-son breakfast, people are going to be outside hounding you. Men, all men, show up, bring your sons, bring kids in the church who don't have, who have single moms and there's dad not present. Let's, let's get everybody here at the 84 Diner this coming Saturday. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to talk about the relationship that fathers and sons should be having with each other's ability to dream big. We're going to have this a wonderful conversation about that. And Jacqueline just really felt the nudge of the spirit to say, during that worship service that we had. And we don't talk about this a lot because we want to bring it up when it's time. But we really truly believe in spiritual warfare. And we really truly believe that the enemy always is going to attack the good things that God is trying to build. I talked to you about three sacraments, Eucharist, baptism, and marriage today. As soon as Jesus entered the sacrament of baptism, who was the first person he met after that? Satan. As soon as Judas touched the morsel of the sacrament of the Eucharist, who entered him right away? As soon as Adam and Eve were married in the garden, who talked to them right away? The devil is always behind the sacraments because he knows they work. I want everybody to hear that. Because for some of us, and this isn't a critique. For some of us, hearing about the goodness of God qualifies something to be true. For other people, knowing that the devil hates it qualifies it to be true. So, as soon as Jesus was baptized, Satan. 
As soon as Judas touched the morsel of bread, Satan. As soon as Adam and Eve were married and they were naked and not ashamed, next verse, there was a serpent who was more crafty than any other serpent. Satan is always going after the sacraments. He's always going after the gifts of the Spirit because he wants us to not reject them, but to have a personal view of them, to make them about us so that it's not about anybody else. And we believe in the city of Beacon and in the Hudson Valley, there is spiritual warfare going on that is making people in the church and out of the church unbelievably self-centered. And it's getting weird and it's getting mystical and we could talk a long time about things we've heard, things we've seen, things we've sensed. And all Jacqueline said was in the foyer while George was transitioning the service, Jacqueline said, I think we just need to encourage the church after church on Sundays to start getting together with people for lunch, for whatever, being in the area at restaurants, at the park, the riverfront, hanging out and remembering to pray and remembering to pray in the spirit as we walk through our city, as we walk through our neighborhood, as we drive to work, but together. Yes, pray on your own. But also, let's not forget to get together. And here's the thing, unofficially, we could have small groups where we do prayer walks through Beacon. I'm not gonna do that. Because I think what would crucify the enemy more is if you all did it because you want to. Because your relationships are calling you to do that. To go to Baja, to go to Brothers, to go to Sal's Pizza, Whatever. It's off the rails, like 24-7. To go to those places, enjoy yourself. Go to the riverfront, it's beautiful. But while you're there, remember to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to permeate the air. To breathe on the air, like he breathed over the earth in Genesis chapter one, verse one things will change. Listen, the power of God is with you to heal because you are the body of Christ. And wherever Jesus is, is the power of God to heal. Lord Jesus, thank you that on the night you were betrayed, you took bread. And after giving thanks for what is broken, you took it and you said, this is my body which is given to you. As often as you eat this and as often as you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would descend on this bread and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And descend on us, forgive us of our sins, cleanse us to come to your table and receive this most holy sacrament, this moment where we sacramentally get to touch your body and be healed of whatever is plaguing us in our heart, in our soul, in our restlessness. And that we might go out into the world as salt and light to declare your goodness to the world around us. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Elder George will be here. Elder Bill will be here. Come and partake. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, 
including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.